glasses will help. There we go. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of James. We're in the book of James. James chapter 2. We've made it all the way to chapter 2. I hope you got a set of notes. Well, we're ready to roll here. So, um, a, a little bit of an introduction to the passage. Um, James is the half-brother. We know that. We know that he is writing his book. Uh, the early church has started to spread. It's got lots of people coming to the various small congregations and, and groups around uh, Israel, and now it's spreading. Paul's taking the word all through Asia Minor, and eventually he's going to Greece and all kinds of other places. There's, there's congregation spot, uh, sprop, sprouting, yes, sprouting up in various locations, and they're, and they're starting to have a problem. And, and the problem is, is that they're not all the same. They're not alike. So we, we first run into this in the early part of the book of Acts when, when they realized that the Jewish people were, were meeting with the, some of the Gentiles, or as they're called in that passage, the Greeks, and, and the, the services that were being rendered to the Jewish extended families, particularly the elder, elderly, were not being extended in the same way to all the Greek families. And so there became a, a discussion of, hey, wait a minute, we've got we to offer these same services and loving care to, to the Greek elderly widows as well as to the, to the Jewish ones. And so they realized they didn't have enough leadership. And so out of that came a discussion about a new form of leadership, which they called the deacons or deaconesses. And, and they began to serve the, the mixed community that was including elderly Greek women, elderly Jewish women, and, and I assume there were some men in there as well, but, but specifically it, it broadened out. The Jewish people who had come to put their faith in Jesus suddenly realized, wait a minute, we gotta, we got to be together with these other groups. You fast forward through and you get to the book of Philemon, that little bitty book in the middle of our New Testament, and we, we realized that there was, there was a church in that area. It was run by uh, Philemon's son, and in that congregation, in that group, in that assembly, there was a mixed bag of people. Only this time, it, it, it wasn't pointed out to us that it was difference between Jews and, and Gentiles. What was pointed out is was rich and not rich. In that culture, there was no middle class. It was either very rich or very poor. And here we have a church that's cropped up out of Philemon's house, and one of the members that had been a part of that group, uh, Philemon himself, gets a letter from Paul. And the letter essentially says, hey, one of your servants took off, ripped you off, made his way to Rome. We've made, managed to have a conversation. He's come to know the Lord Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I've sent him back to apologize, to make reparations, to do whatever is necessary to, to, to heal the, the wound between you. Now imagine what's going to happen when that, when that takes place, when the slave shows up and does what's right, I was wrong, I stole, let me repay, whatever the consequences were, and then he wants to go to church. And now they're sitting in this little congregation run by Philemon's son, and here's the rich man and the very, very poor man. Suddenly the church has got to deal with this whole issue of biases and the whole concept of having a mixed group in, 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 a, in, a, in a worship context. And James, James is going to address that in chapter 2. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 7 for a moment. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Now remember, let me just stop there. James's bent is, is not, you know, creed, but conduct. His, his, his emphasis is not on what you believe, but how do you behave. He talks not so much about doctrine, although there's some in there, but he's far more interested in what do you do with that doctrine? What are the deeds of your life? He wants to make sure that, that, that verse number 7 happens. Verse number 7 says that uh, are, are, not, uh, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom we belong. 
James wants to make certain that the noble name of Jesus Christ is held in highest of esteem in a very practical way, the way you live your life. And so he's going to take on what he calls favoritism. Now that word could be translated a bias. It, it easily could be translated a discrimination. It could be partiality. So when you read whatever your text has, mine has favoritism, Think a little broader than that. Let me keep reading. Suppose a man, here comes his example. This is, this is his second test, if you will, to see if there's authentic Christianity going on in, the, in, in, this, in this congregation. He says, suppose you're in a meeting, you come to a meeting, uh, someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show attention, partiality, favoritism, discriminate, show a bias to the man that was wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, hey, here's a seat for you, but you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated, shown favoritism among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, don't miss the fact in, in chapter 2, verse number 1, he's going he's gonna to base his whole argument and it's going to be centered on who Christ is. He says, essentially, that Christ is the, is the glorious one. Um, he, is, he is, as one writer put it, and I put it in your notes, the full manifestation of the divine presence and majesty of God. His, his example is going, to, is going to compel us, if you will, to, to move beyond any kind of distinctions in our, in our group. So, so if I announce today, I, you know, I really want to talk to all those that are, that are d darker haired because there's a lot of blondes and semi-blondes in our group today. So if I said, I, I'm only going to show my favoritism to the darker hair among us, James is going to say, wait a minute, on the basis of the glorious nature of Jesus, you can't do that because he's no respecter of persons. He, he is not partial in any way to, to extend his loving uh, grace to, to people. He's going to deal, deal with each of us individually as a whole person, not, not as a piece. The very word partiality means to, to, to deal with someone on the basis of only one, one little piece. The color of their hair? Wouldn't that be dumb that if, if suddenly I arranged that that you know, blessings and, and, and extra benefits were being assigned to only those with dark hair, th that partiality would mean I'm only looking at one little piece. I'm not looking at your character. I'm not looking at your gifts. I'm not looking at your faithfulness. I'm not looking at who you are in, in, your, in your everyday life. I just pick one little thing out, and, and I'm using that. James says now his argument is, is, is being exampled by, by this situation of suppose you come and here comes this guy that's well, well oiled with finances and the guy who isn't. How do you deal with the two of them? It's very interesting to me, um, this word favoritism. Um, it's a plural word. It's not a singular word. It's trying to say there's a whole range of emotions that fall into it. There's a whole bunch of things you can think when you're discriminating and, and none of them are good. But there's, but there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, he, he's trying to say, wait a minute, you cannot deal with people, relate to people, uh, honor people on the basis of external stuff. Uh, external stuff, and the example he's giving is money, but it could be how they look. Now, my illustration was color of hair, but what about color of skin? Or what about, what about uh, other kinds of things, cultural backgrounds, ethnicity, uh, wealth? power, positions of. Well, so-and-so is a such-and-such -such in our community, as opposed to him, he just mows the lawn. When we do any kind of external evaluation, we're showing favoritism. And the scripture is so clear. I just put down three references in your notes. Look at Romans 2.11. For God does not show favoritism, period. He does not. He does not. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 9, he's talking about uh, uh, masters and slaves. He says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with God. Colossians 3, same, same idea. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. 
for there is no favoritism. God is not picking and choosing, not on the basis of color, not on the basis of wealth, not on the basis of position, not on the basis of physical proudness, not on any partial thing. God does not do that. And, and expanding our thought just for a minute about God not being a respecter of persons, think about the word discriminate. It really means to view people through categories. So I picked hair color a moment ago. We could, we could take another one. Let's take age. So now I'm going to discriminate. I'm going to make categories here. And I'm, I'm going to make a category of age. This is not a particularly young crowd today. We got a couple, but not a particular young crowd. But, but what if I said I'm going to discriminate and, and all my, my benefits, all the good stuff I got up here in this box for you is going to go on the basis of age and we're going to start with the 30-year-olds and work our way up to the ones that are not 30 anymore. Discrimination is viewing people through categories. He's a this. They do that. By the way, one of the one of the little side notes that came to my mind while I was studying and thinking about this lesson is the use of pronouns. When I use the word they or them, those guys, I'm in trouble. Monitor how you view culture and people around you and watch how easy it is to slip into they, them, those guys. Whether it has to do with race or color or ethnicity or culture or age or 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 uh, intellectual abilities or uh, job descriptions or a thousand other things discriminating is viewing people by putting them into categories the word bias could be dropped in here bias means looking at a bent you have a you have a bent you have a way of looking at things if you grew up in the deep south whether you know it or not, you have a bent. You have a bent. You look at people from a kind of perspective. The other day I was uh, hit Costco and got the big uh, jar of mixed nuts. You know what I'm talking about, that one? Yeah, the one you eat all the cashews first and then work your way through the rest. Yeah, okay. I've discovered a cool thing, though. You buy the mixed ones and the cashews at the same time. After you eat all the cashews out of this one, you just keep adding the you know, cashews from the other one. It extends out the life of the mixed nuts. Well, anyway, a little tip there for you Bible study people. Don't, don't miss that at home. Uh, anyway, there, there is a nut in there that when I was growing up, my mother, having been raised in, in Arkansas, called that nut a word. To my knowledge, I've never used that word. It's never come out of my mouth. But to this day, when I put my hand in to grab a bunch of nuts out of there, if I grab one of those nuts, that word comes in my mind. There is a bent. It's not a part of my life. To my knowledge, I've never used that word and, 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 and would not. But I put my hand in the mixed nuts, and there's a bent. When we talk about bias, that's that bent. But the word prejudice is an interesting word. Prejudice is a compound word. It just means to prejudge. So if I look out at my audience today, and, and I know many of you very well, so I will pick on you today. But if I look at Nancy, who uh, I don't like very much because, as I've told you before, she beats me too often on one of our online games we play. But, but if I looked at Nancy and I wanted to prejudge, I might say this. Nancy is really a lot smarter than Marcy. She is. Sorry. She's just a lot smarter. I think if you started playing Words with Friends with us that Nancy would beat you too. Because I just think Nancy is pretty smart. I prejudged. I've never seen her IQ test. I've never seen her in an academic setting. I just know she beats me all the time, which makes me mad. I would prejudge. I would have prejudice. So now if I was getting a little group together to get my special benefits today, and I wanted to do it on the basis of IQ or smartness, Nancy's at the front of the line. I prejudged off of one little bit of evidence, a dumb game that we play together. To have prejudice is to, is to, is to already have in your mind a preset of thoughts. 
not necessarily accurate, not necessarily true, but they're there. They might have come from your childhood. They might have come from where you grew up. They might have come from a, a family background or whatever. It might, might have come from things that you were exposed to as a, as a young person. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Prejudice is prejudging. It's doing that without the evidence at hand. So when, 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 when James gets to our passage and says, wait a minute, there cannot be. You know, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism, must not be discriminators, must not be prejudiced people, must not have a bias towards others. They can't do partiality or even snobbery. And the example, of course, he gives is having to do with money. Jesus broke down all of those barriers. He did it in a, in a way, and, and I put the verse in your, in your notes, in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier. Now, admittedly, this barrier is the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. It's specifically talking about that the gospel can go outside of the tribe of Israel. But nonetheless, it applies in all areas of, of kinds of discrimination. He says, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. The thing that, to, to, to start in your mind about this whole issue of, of Christians cannot show favoritism is the fact that it destroys peace. When believers get together which is what James is referring to. Remember, it's James to the 12, James to the scattered tribes, those little pockets of believers all over the then known world. When they gather together, they were not all alike. They, they came from ethnic backgrounds that were totally different. They came from, from economic backgrounds that were totally different. Now he says in his illustration, he gives us some triggers, some things that will, will trigger our favoritism. I want to I show you a couple of these. The first one he talks about is gold rings. Interesting. They wore their gold rings on their left hand. And, 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 in, and in doing a little bit of study about rings on your left hand, one of the things that I discovered is, in order to make sure you got all the due that you thought ought to be coming to you because you were really something, you could rent rings. So when you went to a hoity-toity dinner, you didn't just show up with your one little whatever, class ring, and left hand, that would be your wedding ring, or, or something. You could rent really ostentious, ostentious, ostate, no, there's an os word. Anyway, very flamboyant word, flamboyant, I can't get the words out today. Really cool looking rings, okay? I can see Susie back there helping me, but later, Susie. You could rent those rings. So when you sit down at the table and you plopped your old left hand out there and, and they were ready to do their evaluating, they look at your left hand and go, oh, oh, she's really got the goods. It, 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 it was the idea of being gold-fingered, the idea that, that, that you were a person of, of real value. So when you look at around a room and you saw people with with, you know, hoity-toity rings on, and you were a hoity-toity person and wanting to evaluate and be with only hoity-toity people, that's one of the things you do. You'd say, oh, we have, we have similar backgrounds. See, we're, we're a lot alike. What about fine clothes? This is interesting. It, the fine clothes literally in the text means to be bright and shiny. I, almost even the, the concept of being radiant. It's your, it's your Sunday best and then some, you know? And it's the idea that, that when you walked in, there was a contrast between you and everyone else. Lightness and darkness. Really important, not so. Take a look at, mmm. Haven't you ever watched someone walk in a room like that? Not necessarily with their clothes, but with their, their demeanor. They want it to be known to everyone in the room that I'm different than, than you guys. It may be a tone of voice, it may be a way they carry themselves, a topic of conversation, or in this case, the fine clothes that they were wearing. And then, and then the, the distinction that they were poor. The, literally, now this isn't just, you know, we're, we're down on our luck. This is poverty stricken. And really what it's saying is this was someone who was dependent on everyone else for support. 
So when they came together, when James is using this illustration, and he says there cannot be favoritism, when you walk in a room and there's guys that are there that cannot make it on their own, sitting next to the guys that got all the rented jewelry, you got to get it together. There's no favoritism. You can't say, I don't want to be with them, he's going to suck me dry. Or, 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 or take advantage or look at the lovely, bright, brilliant-looking clothing and, 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 and gravitate that direction. You know, we don't, we don't gravitate towards people of similar interest or people who think like we do or people that look like we do. In, in the context of being a believer in Jesus Christ, none of that matters. Now, of course, on a friendship level, having commonality is great, similar interests. I, I, of course, that's a part of the human experience. But when we're talking about Christians getting together to do God's business, there cannot be that. We cannot show favoritism. Favoritism is, 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 is in some way relating just to a piece of the person rather than the whole person. Now notice how, in his example, this person reacts to the, to the, to the very, very poor and to the at least ostentiously, oh, there it is, ostentiously, uh, very, very rich. Notice, on the one hand, it says, he says, here is a seed for you. He's sucking up in the vernacular of the day. He, he's, he's kissing up. Here, sit here. This is the best seat. This cushion's good. We want you up here. And I want to sit next to you because I want everybody to see me with you. Or, or on, on, on the other hand, you stand there. He's driving a wedge. You move over there. Those guys sit there. Them guys sit there. I know my English is not right there, but you get my point. Or, or under my footstool. Under my footstool is implying some sort of dominance. Yeah, you can't fend for yourself. You can't make it. So, you know, sit over here. Yeah, okay, right here. Yeah, by my, by my feet. When police target black men just because they're black, it's wrong. When black young men target police just because they're police, it's wrong. When Christians participate in any form of that kind of discrimination, it's wrong. And when we bring them together with the mindset we're going to worship, we're going to be together, we're going to follow hard after Jesus, we cannot allow a form of discrimination in any way to enter our, our community. We are, we are disrespecting or only respecting one aspect of a person. What they do for a living, the color of their skin, how much money they make, where, where they went to school, what kind of an education or background, what their culture is, what they like to eat. Now he's going to make a biblical argument in verses 8 through 13 against this favoritism. And, and the thrust of this argument is, look at the whole person. Don't stop with just the color of their hair, or the color of their skin, or the language they speak, or the kind of food they like to eat, or how tall they are, or short they are, or how rich they are, or how poor they are, or where they, where they like to hang out. None of those are what we want. We want to consider the whole person. You remember the story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when David is being selected as the king. And, and when, when Samuel shows up, he starts at the oldest boy and works his way down. And finally he gets to what the Bible calls the youngest. And that term means the runt of the litter. David was the runt of the litter. And in that, in that passage, there's a great distinction made about the fact that the Lord doesn't look on the outside, he looks on the heart. And by extension, James's argument is that's how we should be. Not to look at a part of a person, but to look at the heart of a person, the wholeness of a person. So in his biblical argument, look at verse 8 and following, he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture which is, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. 
But if you show favoritism, your sin, uh, you sin rather, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who has said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. His biblical argument really rests in two things. He says, first off, we must keep the whole law. And he refers to the whole law with the term the royal law. What is the royal law? What he's saying is you can't be selectively uh, keeping the, the rules. It's like a kid where you gave them, uh, you know, five things to do, and they come back and they did two. And you said, wait a minute, where's the other? No, but I did that one and that one. And you're going to say to them, that's lovely, but I ask you to do this, 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 and this. Partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is, is, is disobedience. He's saying the same thing to us as adults. There is a royal law. Don't, 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 don't tell me you kept lots of other stuff. What about this one? It's really the second greatest law. If you know the passage in Matthew 22, where, where the rich young ruler, I think it's the rich young ruler, asked Jesus kind of to trip him up. Hey, what's the greatest law? Which one should we really pay attention to? And he says, and you know it, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your soul, and your mind, your strength. And then he says, and second greatest law, love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's think a minute, just pause. How do you and I love ourselves? Well, I, I spent a, a, a good part of one evening thinking about that. How do I love me? And here, here are some things I put down. I'm, I'm pretty patient with my own mistakes. Not so patient with somebody else. I might do the same thing 50 times, but you know, I'm trying. But they, that's the second time. I'm not so patient with everyone else. I'm pretty patient with myself. I cut myself slack all the time. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you know, it wasn't my fault that I didn't get enough sleep. I was hungry or whatever, we find ways to seek our own comfort. How many times do we ask of others to do something for us simply because we're lazy? Or we have TB. You know what TB is? Tired butt. You know, you just sit there and go, hey, could you, could you, could you? What about we looking out for ourselves? Making sure we're being noticed. I used to, years ago, go to what was called fellowship meetings, which was gatherings of all the local pastors in that, in that denominational group. And there'd be hundreds of them, you know, three, four hundred uh, pastors from all over a region together. And it was hilarious walking, watching them work the crowd. Because the, the little guys, the little guys that were doing all the startups, or maybe the, the youth pastors, or the assistant pastor, the guys that didn't have any status yet in the, in the crowd, they'd be standing there shaking hand of, of a bigger fish, and they'd, they'd be looking at the bigger fish and paying attention to the conversation. But if, but if a big fish came by, he'd shake the hand and move on by. In fact, while he was shaking, he's looking over the shoulder to see where the, where the next guy is that he ought to go have a conversation with. You say, oh, I don't do that. Really? Probably not that pronounced, but aren't there ways where we look out for ourselves? We offer ourselves the best part of everything? The best part? I, I've told you this story before, but this will indicate the blackness of my own heart. When my mother came to let us know, my brother Michael and I, that, we, that she was expecting we were going to get a little brother, the absolute first thing both Michael and I said was, does this mean we have to cut the chocolate pie five ways instead of four? That's an honest, truthful statement. That's exactly what happened. That chocolate pie was to die for, and in our family it got cut four ways, and at dinner time everybody got a fourth, and now suddenly, what? We're only going to get a fifth? You know, is that not seeking the best part of everything for ourselves? Here's one. Who do you think about the most? Moi. 
It's the world with me at the center. I often put myself in that, in, that, in that center section. It's not the radius. What is that? Yeah, I guess that would be. No, the center section wouldn't be the radius. This would be the radius. Anyway, if you're at home, you're missing out on that illustration. My point being, when we spend too much time thinking about ourselves at the center, rather than someone else, we're showing preference to ourselves. Do you believe you're always right in an argument? I do. Clearly, if you just saw it right, if you would just listen long enough to get my points, surely you'd go from A to B to C and conclude exactly the way I did. No. I'm on my seventh decade, and it's just now starting to dawn on me that God made people different than me. And it's okay. We seek our own status, our own recognition. We reward ourselves. Yeah, honey, I put an extra how many hundreds on the credit card this month, but it was a really you know, tough month and I deserved it. Or we eat the whole bag of chips one afternoon because golly knows we deserved it. Or a thousand other ways we reward ourselves as opposed to, to looking around the crowd. Bottom line, we put ourselves first. And it's subtle sometimes, it's not all that direct, and the, and the really godly, wonderful among us do it much less. But the royal law that, that James is referring to, this greatest, the second greatest law is, love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. So now back to our congregation that's got a mixed bag of people in it. Do we engage in our love for those people in a practical way that James would, would want, putting their needs before our own? Or are we segre segregating? Do we do for others without prejudice what we would do for ourselves? I've often wondered what it would feel like to stand on the corner with one of those uh, uh, cardboard signs. In fact, I almost a few months ago made a sign and went down and stood on a corner. I almost did it. Because I wanted to enter into that world. What did it feel like standing on that corner with, with that cardboard sign, wondering which of the cars may or may not even slow down to read the sign, much less respond? You and I have a way of evaluating all those circumstances. And it starts with the pronoun they. And that's where we get ourselves in trouble. Now, I realize there's shysters out there. I'm not making an argument that, that everyone has genuine needs. I'm making an argument from my heart. The royal law requires that we do for others without prejudice. Then he talks about a law of liberty or the law of Christ. And what he's really saying is, is that it's a, it's a massive thing. And when we break it in one point, we've broken it completely. You can't say, I've never murdered, so I'm not so bad. He's a murderer. He's bad. We all have pecking orders for sin. We have pecking orders for society. I could minister to them. I could minister to them. I might be able to minister to them. But no way, these guys. The, pro the purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ so that we can understand our failure to meet his standard. And when we break it at one point, we've broken it all. The second thing James is saying is we must speak and act in a certain way. And the certain way he's driving home his principle is encapsulated in those, those, those little words, mercy has to triumph over judgment. Back to my, my, my lady with the sign. If judgment triumphs, I evaluate. If mercy triumphs, I give, knowing full well I might have been taken. Now, I realize that, that that's a, a, a tough example, and there are, there are organizations that make recommendations for other ways to give to, to the needy. I'm not getting into that part of it. I'm getting into the part about mercy triumphing over judgment. It's not my role to judge. I've told you the story. Back in the 70s, I used to sneak out of my little conservative Baptist church and go down to, to uh, Calvary Chapel back, back when Chuck was in his heyday. And I would walk into that auditorium and sit down, and, and here would come the kids with no shoes, 
They'd just gotten out of the water. Half of them stunk. They sat all over the floor. Their feet were in my face. It was precious time. Precious time for me to get a glimpse at, a, at another segment of God's family. We have a tendency to put ourselves in a position where, where judgment gets used all the time, but very little mercy. When it, the word triumph there, it means to boast over. Mercy gets to stand up and boast over judgment. Ha, 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 ha. I am going to respond with a merciful heart, the heart of, of kindness. Literally, mercy means to have goodwill towards someone who is miserable. And they could be miserable because of their, their gender identification. They could be miserable because of the color of their skin. They could be miserable because they're poor. They could be miserable because they're rich. They could be miserable because they're stuck in South Orange County and don't see uh, the world as it really is. People are miserable. And when you and I offer judgment, they get nothing out of that. But when we offer mercy, it's a desire to relieve them of their suffering. Whatever the kind of suffering. James is going to define wisdom as being pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy. I need a rewire here. I need, I need a change in my mind. I need to see people how God sees people. Blessed are the merciful, he says in, in, uh, in Matthew 5, for they shall be shown mercy. I, I need mercy, personally. Just, just as a human woman, I need mercy. I need you and everyone in my world to look at me as a complete whole person and not judge me on, on this or that or them or those. I don't want to be a part of they or them. I want to be me. So does the rest of humankind. When God created, and he, and he looked in Genesis 1.27, and he created man in his image. He did not create anybody to, to be in a specialized class. He didn't say, oh, these are my favorites. They were made in the image of God. The tall one, the short one, the fat one, the skinny one, the black one, the one from Asia, the one who's poor, the rich one, the one who's a policeman, the one who's doing dastardly deeds and needs to get caught, blah, 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 blah. So what? We come to the heart of the lesson. And like I said before I started, I, I really had this section a bit more pointed, so I decided to back off and just create some questions. I'm going to let you wrestle with it. In a world that is truly desperate to label people and to relate to them according to those, those labels. By the way, we do it politically. You're of that party? They showed up in Huntington Beach this week. Them. They were there. You wear a mask, you don't wear a mask. You got the uh, vaccination, you didn't get the vaccination. You voted this way or you voted that way. You loved him or you hated him. Him being him. We, we do it politically. We do it, we do it socially. We do it economically. We do it based on the color of our skin and the, and the way we eat certain things. Christians must, must resist that temptation. To do that. So here's some principles. Principle number one, and I was just alluding to it. We are all, that is all races, all colors, all economic levels, all genders. Right now, if I were to say to you, what group of people are you the most uncomfortable being around, most of you would say something having to do with gender. Trans community, homosexuals, this, that, or the other thing. Most, most in South County would pick that. If you lived in another part of the country, it would be another category. All of those, all those backgrounds, all those cultures, all those people were created in the image of God. God did not start with a, a chosen few. So do we, you and I, ever consider ourselves different or better than them? Is there some sort of pecking order in your mind? Does it affect the way you think? Do you catalog I, I, I spent a better part of a week trying to decide whether I was going to tell you this or not, but I, I will tell you a, a quick personal story. And this wasn't that long ago. It was probably 10 years ago. 
I was driving, I had a house in Laguna, Laguna Niguel, and a nice house, big old five bedroom thing, and a really nice neighborhood, loved, loved living there. And there were no ethnic groups of any kind in our neighborhood that I knew of. Um, all, you know, round white faces and, and blonde and dark hairs. And at any rate, a nice place to live, enjoyed it, whatever. One day I was driving home, and I came around the corner to my little street, and there was a, a, a black youth, he was probably 17, 18 years of age, walking down my street. And I confess to you the thought that jumped into my mind. It was this. What is he doing here? That is so bad. Where did that come from? To my knowledge, I have never participated in any form of discrimination. I was raised in Hawaii, 52 kids in my classroom. Three of us had white faces. We were on the short end of the stick. I moved to Florida the, the six months after they desegregated the high schools. Our first day of school, uh, my brother and I got in a fist fight, not with the black kids, with the white kids, because we got in the wrong line. I have never, to my knowledge, discriminated in any form or fashion on a, on a racial basis. But out of my mind popped, what's he doing on that street? There's work to be done in the way we think. Second observation, second principle. Jesus was born as an outsider. If you just look at the way he was born, where he was born, they wouldn't even let him be born in a, in, a, in a home with normal hospitality. And then his whole ministry, he picked out segments of society that were totally ostracized, totally set, set aside. The lepers had no part in their culture. People that were possessed, demon-possessed, were, were, were forced to live in caves. Blind people had no part of the culture. And if you were a foreigner, you were ex you know, excommunicated out to the edge of society and despised by it. Here came Jesus. He did all of his work, not all of his work, a ton of his work to those, those segments of society. And then when he gets to Luke 10, and, he, and he's discussing this business about answering the question, who is my neighbor, what story does it tell? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The word Samaritan referred to a group of people that lived in the middle section of Israel. And they were the despised and rejected. They had intermarried. Ugh. A Jew spit when the name was given. They never walked through it. They walked around it. And what does Jesus give as an example of who is our neighbor? It's the guy who's the good Samaritan, who goes out his way to help the man who had been beaten and robbed. He's making very clear who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is all of those folks. So I asked the question, and here's the one for you to think about. Who's the most ostracized in your world? And are we stopping to bind their wounds? Do our political or our economic perspectives ever get in the way of our patience or our care for others? And do we only care for those who deserve it? This season that we've been through this last year with COVID and the and the racial tensions, and then the, uh, the, the political tensions. We've all gone to our corners, and, and we got a banner. I'm a one of these. Doesn't matter what's on the banner, but it's, a, it's an identifier. And we want, we want everybody to you know, gather around that, that, that identifies with this banner. Guys, in the, in the family of God, there are no banners. There are none. Who, who should I be binding wounds of? I had coffee a year or two ago with someone who, who did not think I was strong enough in opposition to abortion. And she was railing all over me. Let me just say for the record, I am totally 1,000% aware of and in favor of ministering to those girls uh, people end up with no choices, and often an abortion is, a, is the last resort. We have a responsibility to respond to them. Abortion is murder. It's wrong. But guys, how many in our midst have found themselves in that situation? And when we rail on it without offering a, a, a bandage for the wound, 
We're hurting ourselves and the women sitting around us. I'm anti-abortion as much as anyone, but I'm for the girl who finds herself in that spot. I, I, I recognize what the Bible has to say about genders. I do. I get the, the wrongness of sexual immorality of all varieties and types. But we dare not ostracize that one or that one because they're confused or, or choosing something that makes them feel good at this point, but they're missing the love, the mercy that can come from Jesus. Sound like a southern preacher there. Come from Jesus. Let me give you a third one. Since God has no favorites, and I want you to look at this passage in Acts 10. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 10 for a second. And I know I'm going a few minutes over, but forgive me. Acts 10 and verse number 34, 35. <clears throat> then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, you know, this is the discussion of the, the sheet full of the clean and the unclean teaching Peter that it's time to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But, but the, the truth of that statement fits in so many other uh, applications. God's church, uh, big C, not little c, God's big church, that which is being gathered from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe, is, is described for us in Revelation. And I want you to turn there. Revelation chapter 7. Peter has an epiphany and says, ooh, all these nations are going to come together in God's, in God's house, if you will. And in chapter 7, it, it gives us a description of what that's going to be like. Look at verse number 9. Let me, let me start with verse yeah, 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no man could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they, this is a good place for us to use a they, they, all of them, were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is every people group, every culture. The church is meant to be filled with diversity. There is unity asked, but unity is one body, many parts. We need to recognize how easy it is to put people in categories. My question was, how easy is it for us to see others as equal in our lives? Or do we have, we have state, you know, little stations? God's plan is that we see each other equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal in opportunity. Is there any way in which this person that you might see in your world, you know, has to measure up? Well, if they would... I'm not talking about sin, guys. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that sin doesn't separate us. Sin does, but the color of our skin doesn't. What we like to eat doesn't. The language that we speak doesn't. If you walk into a store and, 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 and people are standing there speaking a language is not the language you speak, are you a little irritated? Can't they speak English? Sure. Do I think that one of the wonderful things about becoming a citizen of a country is that you assimilate into their culture, which would include their language? Yes. If I moved to France, Chances are I'm going to have to learn French. I'm in favor of that, but I'm not in favor of what happens in my heart when I hear it, because what happens in my heart is I categorize them. They just went down a notch. Now, I don't speak that language. I should have gone down a notch. Do we see the cultural landscape as us against them? They're the people that live in the houses and the guys that mow the lawn. And lastly, the principle is God's kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
That was, that was his, his statement the night before he died in John uh, 18. The question for all of us is, do kingdom perspectives dominate our thinking? Do we put on a, a hat that says, by the grace of God, mercy triumphed over, just, uh, or over judgment for me. I became a believer in Jesus Christ. I am one of his kids. Now let me put that cap on. Let me wear that set of glasses. Let me go out into my world and look at everyone else exactly the same way. Or are we allowing current events to sidetrack us from, from the main thing? There are no thems and thoses. In God's economy, there's just usins. I read a story this week. It was about Robert E. Lee, who I, I understand, and I've not done a lot of study on him. I would like to, but I understand he was quite a, quite a gentleman, quite a Christian. And uh, not too long after the Civil War, he was visiting a church in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, during communion, it was their, their custom that they all knelt as they received communion. And so he, he moved over and knelt down beside a black man. Uh, one of the onlookers, having some awareness of who he was and what he just fought for, came up to Robert E. Lee and said, well, how could you do that? Kneel down beside that man. And Robert E. Lee made this statement. He said, my friend, all ground is level beneath the cross. I think that's what James is trying to teach us. God doesn't have any favoritism, and we shouldn't either. So maybe this week is a good time for you to do some self-evaluation. Where are the, the hidden or maybe not so hidden forms of prejudice or bias or discrimination or favoritism that creeps into your heart? Do a little surgery this week and ask God to change your bent. It might be subtle. It might be more significant. You might have all kinds of good reasons for, for the way you categorize people. But maybe the, some of those categories, categories need to be broken down. I, I think that there are in all of us, and it is my prayer, that we're careful to protect what James calls the noble, the noble name of him to whom we belong. Let's pray. Father, you do have a noble name, and we need to protect it. We don't need to say, in the name of Jesus... And then turn around and treat people differently. Take the spotlight of your spirit and go in every corner of my heart. Put some light on it. Help me to change it. Father, in the hearts of those that are listening, I pray for the same. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for coming. It would have definitely been no fun without you. I'm going to stop video. I know I ran over.